What's up, guys? It's Liz Kelly. Next week, the Ringer Podcast Network is debuting a new podcast with Vampire Weekend bandmates Chris Thompson and Chris Bayo called The Road Taken. Here's a quick trailer with more info. Hello, friends. Welcome to the trailer for The Road Taken with CT and Bayo. I'm Bayo, aka Chris Bayo. I've watched Chris bring his sunny positivity and shredding bass lines to stages all around the world for the past 13 years in the band Vampire Weekend. And I'm CT. Which is short for Chris Thompson. For the past 13 years, you've been my sneakily dark rhythm section partner. We've embarked on a massive world tour and are excited to experience all the thrills and boredom that entails. To help us process our own experiences along the way, we'll be having conversations with peers, idols, and maybe a rando or two. The Road Taken with CT and Bayo, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, coming soon on all podcast platforms. I'm gonna love you, I'm gonna love you, I'm gonna love you, come rain or come shine. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show happening somewhere over the rainbow. Why did you write now? I'm like, I'm emotional. We're already already emotional. I'm making a joke about the rainbow because we're going to be talking about the film Judy and biopics and Renee Zellweger. Later in the show, I'll also have an interview with the director, Daniel Scheinert who has a hilarious new movie called The Death of Dick Long coming up. And it's also a a hilarious interview. But first, we're going to talk about um, a lot of movie news. There's a lot going on in the world of movies right now. It's a grab bag. It's a a grab bag, a grab bag conversation. A few days ago, I thought, geez, are we really going to be able to squeeze blood from the Judy Stone for 30 to 45 minutes? And since that time, we've had a few things come across our desk. First and foremost... You don't really care that much because you don't care about the movie Clue, but I do. And hot off of his Emmy win, Jason Bateman is rebooting Clue along with Ryan Reynolds. Amanda, do you care? I think this is a good idea. I actually, I mean, if we're going to do reboots and, you know, in this world that we're living in, I think that Jason Bateman and Ryan Reynolds doing kind of like an arch meta reboot of Clue is funny. I would be interested in that. I mean, I do like murder mysteries and I think... I'm resistant to, like, the 80s campiness of the original Clue, so perhaps they'll bring the energy that I'm I'm looking for. Do you think—so in the original Clue film, Tim Curry plays the butler, who is sort of the central figure of yeah. the film. Do you think that a Clue movie needs a butler? And if it does, is Ryan Reynolds going to be that butler? You think it'll be Ryan Reynolds and not Bateman himself? I don't know. Bateman is directing, sure. you know? He's the auteur right. of Hasbro or Parker Brothers or he who also, makes Clue? Does he, I don't, I'm not sure. Yeah, but he's also the auteur of Ozark and is also in that. So. That's true. That's yeah. true. That's true. I, I'm i not sure. He he strikes me as a, a Professor Plum. Okay. And then Reynolds, I guess, he can't be the butler. He has to be Colonel Mustard? Oh, he'd be a, he'd be a strong Colonel yeah. Mustard. Well, let's... If if people want to cast Clue, okay. just just at AK Dobbins on Twitter. <laughs> just send your your recommendations to her, and feel free to send them to me as well. Another thing that just got announced is that Jennifer Lopez is performing at the halftime show of the Super Bowl. Yes, she is. And it's notable that the Super Bowl happens right before the Oscars yeah. happens, and I believe voting will still be active during the time of the Super Bowl. And um, boy, she's running. She's really just she's running as hard as anyone has ever ran before. She's running for an Oscar and also just for world dominance at this point, which she's had for a long time. And I, I, 
think that we have not really appreciated all of the many things that Jennifer Lopez can do. And it seems like she's really just seizing all the opportunities. I, I was wondering a lot the other day, when are she and Alex Rodriguez actually getting married? And do you think it will be before the Oscars? So you're telling me they're not married? They're engaged, but okay. they're not married. Hmm. But they are going to have a giant wedding that is going to be some of the greatest celebrity content of my lifetime. Should they get married at the Oscars? I, I'm just saying anything's on the table <laughs> at this point. I would watch that. I, I would, would too. Um, hmm. I don't. Do you think she's worthy? You think they're worthy of the kind of standalone hour-long ABC wedding special? You think the world would tune into that? I would love to see it. It would also just like be directed by Alex Rodriguez, which is just something I want to see. <laughs> okay, we'll have to wait and see. But I, man, I really think we're going to have so much Jennifer Lopez in our life for the next four months. Here's my concern. Is it too much? Could be. Is performing at the, at the Super Bowl just kind of, I want it so bad, Oscars campaigning that the Academy might even be resistant, or not even resistant to, but like, well, she's at the Super Bowl, she doesn't really need us. I genuinely don't know. Overexposure is a tactic that is discussed quite frequently, mm-hmm. uh, not just of films, but of stars. And also, if you're working hard to train and practice for your performance at the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. one, I don't think she's going to be stripping at the Super Bowl. So it's not, there's not going to be overt reference to hustlers. Two, that's time not spent kissing babies in the academy, mm-hmm. which is something she's going to have to do. And she doesn't have the same, I don't she know. She can do both. I, I, I think if anyone can, it's Jennifer Lopez, yes. We ask so much of Jennifer Lopez. We do, and Does she, she Doesn't gives. she ever just sit down on the couch and catch up No, I don't think so. That's why Ozark? she's 50 and Jennifer Lopez. Okay. That's not, those are not her priorities. All right, this won't be the last time we talk okay. about J-Lo here on The Big Picture. Two trailers came out mm-hmm. that are very important to my interests. Yeah. One is called Uncut Gems, mm-hmm. which... It will be a high holiday here at The Ringer when that film is released. We'll be talking about quite a bit. And then The Irishman, which premieres today, September 27th, at the New York Film Festival. And I watched both of these trailers, mm-hmm. and I rejoiced in them. Even though I've already seen Uncut Gems, I, I think I watched the trailer like seven times. That's great. Um, did you watch the trailers, Amanda? <laughs> I didn't watch the trailers. You set me up. But it's not because I'm not interested in either of these movies. I'm very interested in both of these movies. I look forward to seeing them. But I'm already going to see them for sure, both for professional obligations, because I do this podcast with you against my better judgment, and then (laughs) also because I'm a curious person, and I love cinema, and I want to see these major motion picture events. So I'm going to see them. So I don't need all of this stuff spoiled for me in the trailer. So I'm not watching the trailer. There was a time in my life when I thought that that was a good approach to yeah. things. And um, that time is over. Okay. I, I, I feel the need to see all of these things as early as I possibly can. The movies or the trailers? Both. Okay. I, I, I want to be deeply informed. But I respect what you're talking about. And I understand that, like, if you watch Uncut Gems, there are going to be some things in that trailer. And, you know, Bobby Wagner, you can, you can say for sure. Like, do you feel like anything was spoiled significantly for you just by watching it for two minutes? Absolutely not. I mean, it was kind of, like, incoherent in terms of plot. Like, I didn't really understand what was going on but, other than the fact that I've read about it on IMDb. Yeah, sure, but I'm not talking about, like, I need—I don't want them to spoil, like, the major reveal of the spy plot or whatever. I know that there's not a spy plot in this movie, but it's not That's like— uncut gems, too. It, you know, it's not like Stranger Things, which, A, I don't care about, and B, which is trying to preserve some, like, fucking monster. Or mythology, I, it's there is increasingly 
um, the movie that you actually watch in theaters or at home, like the actual piece of art. And then there is like the movie that you watch online and the memeing and all of the experience. And that latter part is really fun, but it does screw with expectations. Mm -hmm. It is kind of its own beast that's really divorced from the thing itself. And... I don't know. I just want, I, it's really fun actually when you go into a movie and you're like, wow, I had no idea that this is what it's about. You and I saw a movie last night that I will talk about later, but I was not aware of many of the plot elements in that movie. You know, it's a good point. I definitely, the movie you're talking about is Pain and Glory and it's a Pedro Almodovar's movie. And I also did not watch the trailer of that yeah. movie and didn't read anything about it. And I was happy that I did. And it's good to still have those pure experiences, but we, we care about trailers a lot at The Ringer. I think because a lot of us were raised on them. And I think the, the relationship that you have to a trailer, and of course this sounds quite silly because mm -hmm. they're commercials. That's really all they are. They're promotional materials. But I think we believe in the kind of artistry of a great trailer. And Chris Ryan has written about this. We did a whole bracket about this a couple of years back. When we were talking about Jennifer Lopez a few weeks ago, and I was revisiting U-Turn, I was revisiting the trailer to U-Turn before re-watching the movie. And I loved that trailer as a kid. I don't know why. I, maybe maybe it's the 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 music in it. Maybe it's just the way that the dialogue is cut. But there was something about it that I don't know enchanted me as a fifteen year old. And I think that trailers can still do that. Now the question for me for you is: once you've seen the movies, will you go back and watch the trailers, or you're like, yeah. I don't need that? Yes, of course. And then once I've seen them, I will also participate in like uncut gems memes times a thousand, you know, which is, it, it's not that I don't want to be a part of that experience. And it's also not that I, I, I acknowledge and am affected by the artistry of trailers. I agree that there are really good ones. Did, um, did social network win our trailer bracket? I think so. That I hope so, right. because if not, I disown it. But, um, I also enjoy like the community that kind of builds up around, around these types of movies. But I just, and I also think they're really necessary because you got to get people excited about movies before they come out or else they will not see them and then they die a quiet death. So it's like great that people are actually excited about marketing, even though that is just like a dystopian sentence that I just said. It's a personal thing where I'm already going to see them. I know about them. I know what they are. I know I'm going to see them. So I'm just going to wait. The winner of our movie trailer bracket, which was a hell of a bracket, I got to say, as yeah. brackets go, was Inception. I. I have no comment. Second place was The Social Network. Whatever. The final four was Social Network Inception, The Force Awakens, and The Wolf of Wall Street. Now, The Wolf of Wall Street trailer. Very good. Fucking rules. Yeah. That is also a piece of art. I mean, you could argue that he just like, all his movies are just trailer style heat and he invented I trailers. That's just shame on you mm. for blaspheming In Marty on the way. day of his- In a great way. Premiere of his film. But just like that energy and the, and the I want to be a part of this. Uh, Bobby also music, citing to us that the Top Gun 2 trailer this year, Top oh, Gun shit, Maverick, yeah. was, was great. similarly had people feeling yeah, kinetic. And I literally just like walked through the halls of like the Ringer office screaming like, let's fucking go about the Top Gun 2 trailer, a real thing that happened. But that like Top Gun already exists. So trailers, you're not going to spoil anything to me about Top Gun 2, except that like Tom Cruise is still Maverick. And there's going to be like a scene on the beach and then he's going to have some problems with authority and then there's going to be some flying and then they're going to play that theme song really loud and I'm just going to be jacked so and pumped and ready to go in the words of Kevin O'Connor. So I, it, for me, it's about if I there's something exciting about going into a movie if you don't know anything at all. And it's like increasingly rare and it is a 
approach that applies to basically no one. I completely understand that point of view. For those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, Uncut Gems is the Safdie Brothers' new film starring Adam Sandler. We haven't given any context for this. I think a lot of people did watch the trailer and know about it, but a lot of people also operate like you do, and also a lot of people don't aggressively track the release dates of trailers, so they don't know what things are. The Irishman is, of course, Martin Scorsese's reunion with Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci and also Al Pacino telling the tale of a man who worked for Jimmy Hoffa um, that may or may not be apocryphal, which is an interesting tidbit about The Irishman. Both of those movies are um, were among my most anticipated. I Probably, they're probably both top five for mm-hmm. the year. Uncut Gems certainly lived up. The Irishman, we'll just have to wait and see. I suspect we'll be talking about it again really soon. I'll be honest, The Irishman I also just didn't watch because I already thought I watched that trailer. And I was like, oh, another one? There was a teaser. Yeah. The, these two trailers do two different things. The Uncut Gems trailer just gets you jacked for the movie. It doesn't, as Bobby said, it doesn't really give away any plot. It just shows you the faces of all of the crazy people that are in it that include Kevin Garnett and Mike Francesa and The Weeknd. Yeah, but I already knew that because you already spoiled it for me. So now I'm just trying to go in as pure as possible and experience the world of the Safdie brothers with Uncut Gems. I'm very excited. The Irishman does something different, though. It gives you a lot of the plot of the film, which, well, you know, take it or leave it. I Never mind. I was going to start on my whole Goodfellas thing. But anyway, it would be useful to understand the plot of the movie for me, probably. But I mean, the biggest news in in movies this week, I think, is undoubtedly the fact that um, baseball cap wearing Kevin Feige <laughs> is headed to a galaxy far, far away. Mm-hmm. And he is a different one. taking his talents to to Star Wars. I already see this look of mild resignation on your face. But let me just say, I find this to be simultaneously the most obvious and inspired thing that Disney has done in a long time. Here's why. It's evident that there is Star Wars fatigue and there will be a significant more Star Wars fatigue in the aftermath of The Mandalorian and the aftermath of The Rise of Skywalker. Star Wars, the whole Lucasfilm unit, Kathleen Kennedy and everybody who runs that group has obviously been, I think, struggling to figure out how to expand people's interest in Star Wars after... Rogue One, which did very well, but had a very complicated production process, and Solo, which is really one of the more fraught productions in the last five years in movies, which included fire directors and a recut and poor casting. No no offense to your boy, Alden. Aaron. Why is he my boy? Um, I I seem to recall you enjoying him. I really liked him in Hail Caesar, and then I was out very early that he was the wrong choice for Solo because of a Vanity Fair video in which young actors do the... um, dinner party monologue from Clueless, and which is, uh, you should look that up. Maybe it's W video. Anyway, uh, and he is just not having fun delivering um, the dinner party monologue from Clueless, and that was enough for me. He didn't seem to be having very much fun doing Han Solo either, which is part of the problem with Solo. Nevertheless, Star Wars, simultaneously the most powerful property in popular culture over the last 40 years, and also weirdly imperiled because they may have overexposed themselves yeah. in some ways. So in it, I, in what I assume is in a, a chance to reboot, and we don't know yet what Ryan Johnson is going to do with his proposed trilogy of movies. We don't know what Star Wars looks like on Disney+. Plus. We don't know what the future of these movies is going to be after episode nine, except that Kevin Feige is going to make one. And if I had to guess, make a bunch, because what Kevin Feige does really well is build serialized worlds. And I don't know, do you, just generally speaking, like, do you think this is a good thing for movies to have this person who is such a master of the flattening of culture mm-hmm. take over the other hugest thing in culture? 
I mean, I think the word choice that you just made of like Star Wars is imperiled is fascinating because perhaps from like a, a future franchising IP um, megalith sense, it's imperiled, but it's also fucking Star Wars. Yeah, it's fine. And they make so much money, you know? Yeah, Star but Wars it, is fine. It's imperiled if you expect it to be generating new, excellent things and money. Well, you know, for the rest of time. I think, honestly, it would still be generating money for the rest of the time. They have, like, a Star Wars theme park, and they can charge whatever they want for it. And they have figurines. But it's only imperiled in terms of its its future spinoff power. So in that sense, sure, as a corporate decision, I guess it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense for um, Kevin Feige to do it. It's like the safest pair of hands in order for him to just— to to fix everything that went wrong and to have some just guaranteed multi probably platform I, I assume he'll do both movies and TV and just kind of create at least steer the rest of the world in the way that he has done for Marvel and he's done that successfully so yeah it makes sense is it good or bad for movies i i don't know i don't really know either i mean i i I'm probably a, I'm certainly a bigger admirer of Marvel than you are, um, and I'm, I'm I'm a bigger admirer of Star Wars than you are. I think a lot of the panic, which you and I talked about with Wesley um, a few weeks ago on the show, is oriented around: is this the only thing that we're going to have? Right. And someone like Feige coming into work on Star Wars indicates to me that um, there is a style and approach that things need to to maximize profits, and. Star Wars, while it has been doing well in the obvious sense of things, like, for example, Star Wars The Last Jedi is considered a controversial movie. There are a lot of people who hated it. It was still very successful. It made $1.3 billion. But it did not make $2 billion, which is how much The Force Awakens made. Mm -hmm. And so $700 million is a lot of money. And the difference between, between those two earnings, I think, has Disney a little bit concerned. And subsequently, Solo made... $350 million, which is not a lot of money at all. That's worldwide. That's not good for a Star Wars movie, especially because those movies usually cost somewhere between $250 and $300 million to make in the first place. So, imperiled is too strong a word, but there, there are shareholders to think about, I think is what Disney is thinking. Right. And they need to bring in their biggest gun to reset. And it feels like that's what they're doing. And I think if that means that young people observe the strategies that Kevin Feige employs, like that may be the most influential culture that we have, which means that all the culture that we're going to get 10, 20, 30 years from now will all be influenced by all that culture. I'm not trying to go galaxy brain here, but th yeah, there is but something like, fascinating about that. was already that. true. <laughs> like that's, I mean, it's, it's, this is just a confirmation of the world that we're living in and what corporations expect of movies and producers and what fans or like, quote, people who go to see movies expect of like their beloved IP. And it's, and what is considered a quote success and what someone like gets attached to in terms of content and how they're willing to consume it. I, I mean, that has been the case for five years now. I think like it, this is just a confirmation that Kevin Feige was so successful doing it that now everyone's like, oh, that's the way. And one of the funny things about it is I think one thing that Marvel in particular has has taken from Star Wars is every character is just kind of a riff on Han Solo. They're not riffs on Luke Skywalker. They're riffs on Han Solo. They're all kind of jokey heroes who are saving the day, but also they're kind of screwing up 
Mm-hmm. And the idea of somebody, I, it is very snake eating its tail is, is ultimately what I'm saying. And Kevin Feige is not a writer and he's not a director and his sensibility is unique and has been powerful, but we don't actually know like really, really what that sensibility is. So how it'll fit into this world is an unknown, but it's a fascinating state of the business kind of a story to me. And not to you. <laughs> no, no, it is fascinating. It's just kind of like, I, I I feel the same way as I did when you were like, can you believe that they're making a new Matrix? And what was the other news that came out? And you were like, is, should I be having an existential crisis about the movies? And I was just like, well, you know, welcome. It's, but it's, this has been Disney's model for so long at this point that it's not surprising that they're just consolidating, which is really what they are. They're just consolidating all of the best minds and the people who are working on their giant money-making projects and being like, okay, we put all our resources here. One last thing about Star Wars. Yeah. Do you find it weird that we don't really know anything about the rise of Skywalker? Um, well, no. It's out in two and a half months. But they know that people are going to see it regardless because they want to know what happens. Mm-hmm. So again, to the conversation we were having earlier, why would you tell people what's going to happen if you want them to come see it? I think like Star Wars is probably the only franchise at this point where just awareness is grandfathered in and I want to know what happens. It's like everyone else, you do have to start marketing six months in advance and like maybe give away half the plot and, you know, create some attachment between like a child and a, a toy before the movie is even on the screen. But I think Star Wars is the exception to the rule. Let me pitch a theory at you mm-hmm. that you may think is total Oh, you don't think hogwash. they know what happens yet? No, 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 no. Well, I'm, we know that there is history of these most recent Star Wars movies going through a lot of changes. Like the original script for The Force Awakens is so significantly different from the movie that they ended up making. So many side plots got cut out. Mm-hmm. So many, you know, the, Chris Ryan is always referring to that famous moment where the movie was supposed to start with, I think, uh, Luke's uh, lightsaber falling from the sky and landing on a planet. Okay. Which is not what happened. Um But it's not so much that. It's more that, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago when we were talking about Marvel too, you know, no Marvel movies for the rest of the year. There's going to be this long stretch of time, the longest stretch of time we've had since 2008 between Marvel movies. And this episode nine signals the end of a certain, of the Skywalker saga of Mm -hmm. Star Wars, whatever that will mean. And we just accept as a fait accompli that this is what movies are. And that movies now have to be these event things that you're talking about with a high level of awareness. And we can't get people super duper excited about anything unless they have that. But it's also possible to me that starting next year is the start of a new and unknown phase. And it doesn't mean that superhero movies are going away forever or Star Wars movies are not important anymore or that they're never going to be the same. But I do think that it's possible that with the onslaught of all these streaming services and the way that our time is getting eaten up by other things that are not movies, that something else is going to have to emerge to, I don't know, embolden, empower, embiggen mm-hmm. the theatrical experience because we've had such a long period of time with these movies. Now, maybe that's optimistic. Maybe the thing that comes in behind it is even worse or, or less interesting. But I have this gut feeling that I can't rationalize necessarily that the way that everything played out with Endgame and the way that they told that story which was, regardless of how you feel about Marvel movies, like expertly executed. And the Star Wars thing, which is making an effort to kind of put a bow on this most recent last seven or eight year run of Star Wars movies, is literally the end of something and might even generationally be the end of something for movie going. 
I mean, I think that's right from a character perspective as well, right? Of they were they're getting rid of in Endgame, they got rid of um, Iron Man and to an extent Cap and these people that they had been kind of building a decade worth of, or these characters that they'd been building a decade worth of investment in, and that's true. I assume that the Skywalker saga will be, it's literally the end of the Skywalkers. So they are restarting with new characters and kind of, they have to, it's reset. And you have to assume that how people relate to the reset will be different just because, as you said, the way we watch movies will is different this year than it was last year and will be different next year. And like, I, I th- maybe there will be something new. I think it'll almost certainly be IP-driven. I can't imagine a world in which someone's like, here is a new thing that you've never heard of that has like 50 characters and requires 10 to 15 years of investment on the big screen. And also, you need to spend a lot of your extracurricular time reading about the subparts of this so that you can bring... You know, I, I, I think it's really hard to create something from scratch in the world that we live in just because there's like so much else that is that is fighting for attention. And I think that's honestly why Disney is like, okay, well, we'll just give Star Wars to Kevin Feige because it's the one thing we have that's still iterative and is still guaranteed to get people's attention. So, I, you know, I think I think you're right. I think it'll be different. I think it's the end in a lot of ways. I, I don't know that we're suddenly going to invent like a new genre and a golden age of cinema next year as a result. No, and I'm not promising that at all. Um, it's it's certainly possible that things are much worse. You know, <laughs> that like we have we have clearly taken Guardians of the Galaxy 2 I for mean, granted. You I know? mean, I feel like we're always such negative Nancy's about it. Like, worse is, I mean, it may be terrible for the business and movies that we like do not have a greater chance. But, you know, if Ken Feige wants to oversee a Star Wars thing, people like Star Wars. I'm going to see the Skywalker one, even though I can never remember the title. Can you just have shorter titles? But it's fine. I want to know what happens. I do too. Star Wars, great. There's a movie in production or in pre-production now called The Micronauts. Um, Dean DeBlois, who has made the How to Train Your Dragon animated films, is working on it. This was just announced earlier this week. This is a kind of example of a thing that you were just trying to describe, which is like, could we come up with something? Now, The Micronauts was a toy line in the Mm -hmm. 80s, which was adapted into a comic book by Marvel, but was born of the toy manufacturer. And they've been trying to find a way to make this a movie for a bunch of years. That's always a great sign when you haven't been able to turn something into a movie for 35 years. I know, but reading about this film, which, and Dean DeBlois is a, is a really good filmmaker. And if you like animated movies, the How to Train Your Dragon movies are actually really well done. And I think that weirdly, that new How to Train Your Dragon film is a sleeper and best animated at the Oscars this year. But reading that kind of made me feel bad about the world. I was like, this guy who's a brilliant, who created this series that was hugely successful for animated films, is looking for his next thing after closing the chapter on his story, and he's going to the Micronauts, which is a toy line. I mean, it's like not what you want, but I'm thinking back to Wesley's conversation. There has been a version of this in every decade, in every generation, since since movies were made. And I think every generation has worried about technological advances and how does that affect how movies are made. You know, I don't... If you're excited that there is going to be a Star Wars movie by or you know with the blessing of Kevin Feige that's great that's, that's you know it's it's a hard world out there what are we going to do every generation gets the micronaut it deserves let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor and when we come back we're going to talk a little bit more about Judy and the five biopics you meet in heaven <laughs> 
Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by M&M's Hazelnut. Watching a movie is nothing without a bag of your favorite treats. And what a better way to take your treats to the next level than with the new M&M's Hazelnut Spread Chocolate Candies. As I sit across from Amanda Dobbins, she is currently inhaling a bag of M&M's Hazelnut This is a great excuse to eat one while in front of a mic. Thank you. These things bring you a delicious combo of hazelnut spread and milk chocolate in every bite-sized piece. Isn't that right, Amanda? It is. It's delicious. Mouthful of hazelnut spread (laughs) (laughs) M&M's. M&M's Hazelnut Spread is going where no hazelnut spread has gone before, right inside M&M's Chocolate Candies. If you love M&M's Chocolate Candies and you love hazelnut spread, just wait until you try these together for the first time. They've added a delicious hazelnut spread to the center of smooth M&M's milk chocolate and candy crunch shell. Enjoy them on your own or use them to dress up your other favorite treats. Just imagine them baked into cookies or sprinkled on top of your go-to ice cream flip flavor. Go hazelnutty and try the new M&M's Hazelnut Spread Chocolate Candies today. Today's episode of The Big Picture is also brought to you by the Lost at the Smithsonian podcast. New from Stitcher comes Lost at the Smithsonian, a pop culture history podcast exploring the little-known stories behind iconic artifacts from the National Museum of American History, one of my favorite museums. Follow host Asif Manvi from The Daily Show inside the National Museum of American History as he shares smart and fascinating insights into cultural items like Fonzie's leather jacket and Dorothy's ruby slippers. We'll, of course, be talking about Judy Garland on this podcast and Dorothy. Along with National Museum of American History curators and celebs, Asif traces just how these special objects came to define our culture. So listen and subscribe to Lost at the Smithsonian right now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Amanda, we're back, and we're here to talk about Judy. Judy, of course, I think is the first true, authentic Oscar bait movie of the year. What do you think about that? Well, it's an Oscar bait performance. Mm. There's a, a key distinction here. Yes. This movie is directed by a man named Rupert Gould, and it stars Renee Zellweger as Judy Garland. And it tells the story of her life, I guess, in two parts lightly as a young woman making Wizard of Oz and learning at MGM how to be a child star, but mostly at the end of her life, living in London, performing nightly at a space called The Talk of the Town and kind of coming apart at the seams. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in this conversation, we're going to talk about the kinds of biopics that Hollywood likes to make. This one was very familiar to me. I think you and I agree that this movie is not very good. Yeah, it's, ex- I mean, it's extremely, extremely formulaic biopic, which is not always a bad thing, in my opinion. And I'd like to talk more about the format of the biopic at some point. But I, you know, it's surface level of a lot of things. I'm always like, when you're doing more than five flashbacks to childhood, and it's, it's and it's really on the nose explaining all of the themes and what's gone wrong. I I'm resistant to that. Usually it's, it's extremely paint by numbers. It is. And it, it's somehow both way too overt and way too subtle. Judy Garland is, oh, I, I'm curious to know what your relationship is to Judy Garland, because obviously I'm sure you, as I did, grew up watching The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz is probably my first movie memory. That was, that was a movie that was on in my house all the time growing up. And I loved that movie. I still love that movie. But I don't think I really had much of a relationship with her beyond that movie until I got into my 20s and my 30s. I wasn't shown... A Star is Born or Meet Me in St. Louis or some mm-hmm. of the other kind of big Judy Garland films. And I also was not played those records, you know, that she has this, a lot of albums, especially in the in the 50s and the 60s as she's kind of moving through the latter stages of her life. And she's become over the years, you know, she's a gay icon. She's a kind of a camp icon. She's obviously a old, old school Hollywood icon. What What is your relationship to Judy Garland? 
it's funny. I was rewatching clips, and I, as as you know, and I, as I am loath to share in great detail on this podcast, but I, I had a bit of a, a performing arts, uh, yes, section of my childhood. I uh, played, I played a lot of instruments. I was, you know, I don't know. It's what my, I, I took dance classes. I, I did the whole thing. Something of a young Judy Garland. Um, no, thankfully. <laughs> But when you are as immersed in the world of music and dance and to an extent theater as I was, um, you just know a lot of Judy Garland songs. They just are kind of part of the firmament. And so, you know, Get Happy is something that I've like heard and seen many times. And I know all the songs from Mimi and St. Louis. And it's just there. I realized that there are a lot of um, songs and, and performances that are just stored somewhere in the back of my mind that I'd been exposed to at some point. And they they just exist to me. It's like Judy Garland has always been in the world performing. What's your favorite of her, of, of, of her output, I guess? Because uh, she's done so many things. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be Right. So I, you know, I don't know if I made note of this, but the original performance of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas is in is in that movie, Meet Me in St. Louis. Yes, it is. And, you know, I think we think of it now as maybe a Frank Sinatra song or just an old Christmas chestnut. Not me. But I think of it as a Judy Garland song. It I, is a Judy Garland song. I watched it before we did this podcast and instantly started crying. It's unbelievable. And I think it's a good opportunity to talk about what it is that Judy Garland has, which is not describable necessarily. <laughs> um, but she has a a powerhouse quality. Next year all our troubles will be miles away. Especially to her singing voice, but even to her acting style that is not replicable, that is hard to compare to other people. I think if you look at what kind of what happens in on Broadway in the years to come, like the Ethel Merman types, mm-hmm. you can see some shades of Judy Garland, but she is simultaneously this sort of doe-eyed, innocent, and also the kind of the strongest woman in the room, like helplessly fragile, but effortlessly powerful at mm-hmm. the same time. She's such a unique star. And her singing voice is, is bizarre. It's bizarre to me. I, I mean that in a, in, a, in a good way. It's, I don't know how one does that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is a unique unreplicable gift, which we'll also talk about in the context of Judy, the movie. But it's, Judy Garland is one of those people that makes you realize like, oh, like some people have talent. Some people are stars. Like a star is literally born. And I think she she obviously struggled with that a lot in, in her lifetime and living up to this incredible gift that she had, but, or, or dealing with it as I guess the case may be. But yeah, man, I, some things are inexplicable. Yeah. And she, you know, she obviously is indoctrinated into Hollywood at a very young age. Louis B. Mayer sort of adopts her as his ingenue at MGM. And we learn in the film and elsewhere, if you are anything of a, a Garland defile, that she quickly develops an addiction to pills. I think she starts taking diet pills as a child to keep her weight down, but also takes a lot of downers to get to sleep because she really has trouble sleeping. So she's on this kind of up and down escalator of the mind throughout her childhood, which then leads to a lot of awful habits and addictions into her adulthood. And, you know, it's it's hard to know if the unique energy that she has is informed by this pharmaceutical 
um, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like it is a kind of an indoctrination. Like it kind of takes over her brain. And sometimes when you see her in a movie, and I was watching clips of her last night, she seems like a little bit wild-eyed. Yeah, you know, and there's something uncontainable about what's going on inside of her that in some ways it makes her an impressive performer and in other ways kind of makes you worried about her. Oh, I definitely think you worry about her. And I think that that's kind of uh, over time worrying or concern trolling her as the case may be. It certainly became a part of her personality, like her off-screen struggles were as much of the myth of Judy Garland as the fact that she could sing. You know, she's like basically our first child star Mm -hmm. and the first child star that's gone wrong. And I, I, I'm, she definitely struggled with addiction her whole life. And you, you, if you're on that stuff for that long, it changes your, you know, neurological changes, the way you handle things. And also she was tremendously famous from a very young age. And that also really warps your sense of what it is to be in the world. It's a, I mean, it's a, a whopper of a combination. It is. And she, you know, was exposed to a couple of complicated ideas early in her life, which the film kind of touches on, particularly sort of being set up with Mickey Rooney, the actor that she starred in a lot of films with. And that was very much a kind of a Hollywood sham alignment. But that clearly warps her sense of love and her sense of connection and relation, romantic relationships. And, you know, she was married five times in her life. She famously kind of married the wrong man many times over. And she's just... She was quite batty in a lot of ways and not in a in a bad way, but you can sense like when you're talking about that sort of off-screen persona, there are all these great interviews on shows like Dick Cavett where she's simultaneously this incredibly clever and fun old school archetype of the Hollywood actress, but also, you know, a little teetering on the edge. You know, mm-hmm. there's a there's a there's a, a scary quality to the energy that she emits. And obviously, like, her life ends very tragically and way too soon. She died at 47 years old, yeah. which is just terrifying. Um, but she is literally one of the greatest things that Hollywood has ever produced. I mean, she is just an absolutely captivating person. There is a great line in Judy when um, the man who becomes her fifth husband is hitting on her. And he was like, oh, I didn't know they're the greatest entertainer in the world this year. And the Judy character goes, oh, is Frank Sinatra here? But I mean, it is true that she is certainly at the time was up there with Frank Sinatra in terms of of talent and and also like exposure. Completely. Yeah. The movie. um, Hmm. Let's start with Renee Zellweger. Yeah. I think that's why we're talking about this. It is. It is because we're going to be hearing a lot about Renee Zellweger and this performance and her career and her her work. I think for the next four months. Mm -hmm. Um. If I had to guess, there's been there's been a very subtle earmarking in all four major acting categories right now, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I think the feeling is that she has this pretty well locked down mm-hmm. in the best actress category, and in the same way that like we think it's either going to be Brad Pitt or Tom Hanks. We've been talking a lot about Jennifer Lopez. Yeah, there's a little bit of a fait accompli aspect to this too, and I think that this is a great performance. And I think she is turning herself over to the role in a big way. And it's very showy in the way that the Academy likes. It's a transformation. It's a mm-hmm. biopic. She does all of her own singing. There's a lot of makeup involved. Yes, there is. In an effort to make her look like Judy Garland. What, are you, what did you make of Renee Zellweger's Judy? These are interesting, especially when you're playing someone as theatrical as Judy Garland. And I, I went back and watched some of the, the late period Judy performances because, you know, I remember her like from the movies um, through the earlier part of her, her career, but she is 
really going for it in it with like a tinge of desperation in the 60s which I, I think is true to life and the the movements are a bit jerkier and there is that kind of wild-eyed look in the eyes that you were talking about so I think everything that Renee Zellweger is doing is like very true to the source material and very true to the spirit of the character at this moment which is like six months before the end of her life and a time of like great desperation it's all that said, it's really hard when you're doing something that theatrical and you're doing someone else who is very famous, It's it starts to look like an impersonation to me. It just, like, really does. And it's—I think that there is an emotional aspect to Renee Zellweger's performance that is really moving, um, and I grounds it a bit more, so I don't think it's in, like, the range of— of SNL at all, but it is really hard when you're doing those like big, big jerky movements and a, and a way of talking that is not the way we talk anymore and a style of singing that is like not the way anyone sings anymore. You're just kind of like, wow, okay, I can see this performance. I think that's what it is. You can see the performance. That's such an interesting way to put it. I think a lot of times the Academy and we like to reward things like Daniel Day-Lewis where somebody slips inside of someone mm-hmm. and you forget you're watching an actor. Right, and you're like, but- I'm overwhelmed by the way that this person does this. And I think men more often are credited with this kind of ability to do this. Sure, except Rami Malek won last year for Bohemian Rhapsody. And that was straight up SNL impersonation, in my opinion. That's absolutely right. And I think there are, there are of course, actresses, Meryl Streep being one of them, who you just, just disappears every time. And you're like, how does she do mm-hmm. this every time? But for the most part, um, I think that the chameleonic Christian Bale, Daniel Day-Lewis kind of a person is more likely to be rewarded. Now, it's possible the Academy is changing a little bit and the Rami Maliks of the world are more likely to be rewarded. The difference between Rami Malik and Renee Zellweger is that Renee Zellweger does sing. Yeah. She does not sound at all like Judy Garland. No. But she gets points for effort. Is I it, give her a lot of points for effort, honestly. As you recall, I think that you should have to sing to win the Oscar. She's actually quite a good singer. I mean, we know that from Chicago, um, a film that she was also nominated for Best Actress. And she has a certain kind of character to her voice. It's really, really hard to com- be compared to Judy Garland singing. I mean, yeah. if you go back and listen to some of those records. Forget your troubles, come on, get happy. Away. Maybe we should just let here get happy right now, just to get a sense of what she does. The judgment day. The sun is shining, come on, get happy. The Lord is waiting to take your hand. Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy. We're gonna be going to the promised land. We're heading across the river, wash your sins away in the tide. If you listen to songs like that, you know that it, like we said, it's it's not replicable in mm-hmm. any way. And even if you're completely trained aggressively right. to sound like Judy Garland, you just can't get there. Does that is yeah. that gonna be held against her in well, any way? I, I think the film does one very smart thing, which is until the very last uh scene, which we should talk about, um, she doesn't do like the really, really big hits. She does actually get happy as in the movie, but it's in a sort of um it's it's performed in the apartment of a gay couple that she meets. That's right. And it's like a cappella, and she only sings a part of it. So she's never like doing Get Happy. And she doesn't do Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Does she? They do the trolley song somewhat. She did, briefly does the trolley song during her performance. Do you consider the trolley song like a, a well known American? Actually, I don't standard? identify it with her. Yeah. You know, I identify it with a, with American standards, but I don't think, well, that's Judy Garland's song. Right. Um, I, yeah, I, 
you're right that they they withhold the the key Judy Garland tune till the end of the film. And I think if you're like a if you are a Judy Garland fan and expert, then you can hear you know what every song in this movie sounds like. But for for me, even I didn't know some of the songs that she performed. So I, I think that's smart because then you're not instantly in your head at least comparing the performance. You're right. And the other thing they don't really do is have her sing very many ballads. Um, my my favorite Judy Garland performance is It's a New World from A Star Is Born. Mm-hmm. Where we polish up the stars and mountains we move in a life where all the pleasures we will prove. And it's, it's one of the most delicate and beautiful vocal performances you'll you'll ever hear like it's just overwhelmingly good but that is a song that like really only seven or eight people on earth can sing and Renee Zellweger can't sing it so they don't try to let her sing it they don't do the man who got away either which is I mean which is possibly like the all-time cinematic performance by Julie Garland so without those songs and the Charlie song is you know it's a it's a bang bang musical song it's it doesn't require that kind of grace so you're not you're not holding it against her necessarily if you don't want to hear about the end of the movie, turn the podcast off. But like, also, you know what it is. If you if you don't know how they're going to end a Judy Garland movie, shame on you. Um, you know, they end the movie with a very emotional performance of "Somewhere Over the Rainbow," and I, I, it sounds like it got you. Well, this is the thing: is that it got me before it started because I knew I was coming, and it, we just got to that moment, and I was like, "Oh shit, she's about to do "Somewhere Over the Rainbow," and they had not played a note, and I was crying. And it's, it's so hokey, though. It's so hokey, but. I think that that is like the positive power of the of the biopic formula that I just knew that that beat was coming and I have been trained through a lifetime of knowing that there is like an emotional last moment where someone's life and greatest contribution will be recreated with a lot of money on screen and I was going to hear somewhere over the rainbow and I was, I like it just the neurons kicked in it was like Pavlovian it, and and then I cried through the whole thing. Um, I did not cry through the whole thing. I found it relentlessly hokey. <laughs> but I, I admire the effort, and I know what they were going for. It was to me, it was symptomatic of kind of the problem with the movie. I think that it's unfair to say what I wanted to see was like a more raw and deep and angry and upsetting version of Judy Garland's life. But I did because I know that that's how it was. And yeah. if you read about her life, you know that her life was really fucked up, and she had a lot of demons, and she really struggled through those last five to ten years. And the movie, it doesn't necessarily pull back on the fact that she struggled with addiction or was in bad relationships or was in this fight to, you know, um, stay close to her children. She, she, It shows that stuff, but not in any kind of, like, it holds, deep way. It does not hold her at all responsible. No. For, not. like, any of it. Which, and you know what? She had, a, like, a very tough life, and I, I think we're all aware of what the uh, MGM studio system was like. And I believe that she had a very, um, like, archetypal stage mother and, and her mother does not even appear in the movie, which yeah. is weird. And and you and you can't hold someone like responsible for addiction, also. Which I so it, that said, it is like it's martyrdom in the movie, and mm-hmm. that is well. I mean, I we're used to that in the film, but it is like a particularly soft lens version of Judy Garland. Tell me about Renee Zellweger because I I find her to be a fascinating mm-hmm. movie star figure of our lifetime. There's this wonderful piece in New York Magazine by William Van Meter that I found to be deeply revealing. You re- you mentioned it a couple yeah. weeks ago. I hadn't read it until last night. That was the moment when I was like, oh, okay, so she would like a Best uh, Actress Oscar. 
And th- what's notable to me in, in part about that piece is that William Van Meter clearly has a relationship with Renee Zellweger. They've known each other since 2001, I think, when he first wrote about her. Yeah. It's Jonathan Van Meter, by the way. Excuse but, me, yeah, Jonathan Van okay. Meter. Um, and you you see a person who I, I would not say has necessarily a lot in common with Judy Garland, but she's also a quirky character. Mm-hmm. You know, she seems unusual. And she has really been forced through the slipstream of American movie star fame. She certainly has. And the, the, the piece acknowledges a lot of that and it talks a lot about the burden of You Had Me at Hello and the trickiness of Bridget Jones and the complications of people evaluating her face five years ago. She is sort of, she is the example and of an actress and plastic surgery and everyone just deciding this is the one we're going to talk about it and say really mean things. It's like through talking about her, we all learned that you don't just get to say whatever you want about how an actress looks, especially as they're aging, even if your physical appearance is a major part of the craft of acting. Um, but yeah, she really was the, um, I guess, the guinea pig, for lack of a better word on she that. She was. And it's funny because, maybe funny is not the right word. I don't know what it is. You know, people slung some very nasty things her way about what she had done to her face or not done to her face. And then we saw her a year later or two years later, and she looked, again, just like a slightly older version of the Renee Zellweger we all know and love. And there was some confusion and some contrition. And I, in general, I think that we have kind of moved on from that moment. And I, I thought that the way that she addressed it was polite, but not terribly deep in mm-hmm. that piece. Similarly, she is a person who was a signal participant in the rise of Harvey Weinstein. All three films that she is nominated for Best Actress or Best Supporting Actress— or Weinstein, Miramax films. Mm-hmm. She was present for a lot of that stuff, not for the misdeeds, but just for the, the those moments in, in Hollywood history. And she talks about it a little bit in the story. And I thought she reckoned with it a bit. I don't know if there's ever a version of, is anybody reckoning with a problem like this enough? Because it must be enormously complicated to be around for all of that stuff. And she has identifies herself throughout the story as a person who is outside of Hollywood. You know, she's a real Texas gal. I saw her uh, quite frequently at Telluride at the film festival. You know, she's just wearing jeans and a flannel shirt and a big hat and just kind of walking around, being nice to people. And she's a very movie starry, but also has a down-home quality that I think mm-hmm. we've kind of all always responded to. Um, what what else struck you kind of reading about her and thinking about her career again? Well, I think she's obviously using, or the movie is using a lot of the last six to eight 10 years of how she was treated by the press and kind of a a complicated relationship to fame. And she has very, she retreated after all of the the plastic surgery stuff and didn't take movies for a while. And the profile talks a lot about how she like took random undergrad classes and was writing to write. And I believe she wrote a lifetime pilot that they passed on. She was just kind of exploring life outside of, of Hollywood And then is, you know, now coming back and possibly using the demons of Judy Garland to work through some of her own experiences, uh, which Lord knows that the Academy loves that. So I, I just thought a lot about it in terms of the pairing of role and person and moment in life. It seems quite teed up. It's a movie about a great artist trying to make a big comeback, starring a great artist making a big comeback. Mm -hmm. And that's very neat and very cozy and easy to sell. And she's good. You know, she's good. What else can you say? Like, Renee Zellweger is never bad. She's never been bad in a movie. She's never been anything less than appealing in a movie. 
So I know you're you're a huge Bridget Jones fan. Yeah, it was very funny when she was trying to do the the Judy Garland um, talking voice, the cadence. She would slip into like Bridget Jones British cadence sometimes, which I only recognize because I have seen that movie literally two hundred times. But I was like, oh, I know where you got that rhythm. Yeah, I've always enjoyed her. She has dabbled in a kind of transgressive American indie cinema over over the years. You know, she was in things like. A Price Above Rubies. That was one of the first things she did after Jerry Maguire. She was in Nurse Betty, which is a movie that Van Meter, I think, notably pointed out is a bit underrated and a little a little lost to time. It's a really strange but fun movie that Neil Abu directed starring uh, Chris Rock and Morgan Freeman. Um, Cold Mountain is another movie that I feel like is completely forgotten that at the time was considered like maybe the most important movie of the year. I, I don't know. I remember that because that was also when Jude Law was really important. Not that he isn't now, but that was like Jude Law is going to be the next Brad Pitt. And he's got a different route. It's true. He's on the poster of that for that yeah. film. You know, Renee Zellweger won for Cold Mountain. Really she has weird. an Oscar. Yeah. So the the inevitable nature of this Oscar cycle is kind of interesting to me because she's already got one. And that shouldn't really necessarily matter. But we talked about how Maggie Smith has has a couple right. already. Yeah. So, but uh, we we talked about how Maggie Smith doesn't campaign, and Renee Zellweger is campaigning, and I there really is like a um, self prophecy to the acting categories. People are just like, I will win this, and often everyone else is like, Oh, okay, sure, you you want this, you're gonna do it. Why why not? It's kind of, it's like the fake air kissing quality of Hollywood of everyone just kind of being like, Oh, well, I guess it's you know, I'll just do what this person wants. I, it's it's very strange, but she basically just announced. I am running for Oscar, and I know that's like a bit that we do now, but she really did, and I it's I would be shocked if she doesn't win. Manila Dargis in the Times wrote of Judy, one, this is one of those biopics that tries to encapsulate the sweep and substance of a life by narrowing in on ostensibly representative moments. When she wrote that, I thought of Steve Jobs and, mm-hmm. and Lincoln. Yeah. Let's just quickly talk about the stages of biopic. Okay. Because there's a certain style to yeah. these movies that they they hew to. The obvious one is Cradle the Grave, which is, you know, Ray, Malcolm X, Ali, Avita. Mm-hmm. There's tragedy. Yeah. I think Milk is probably the single most famous one where yes. the, the the film sort of builds to the crescendo of of tragedy. There's impressionistic, mm-hmm. which is a style I quite like, though is very hit or miss. That's I'm not there. The right. Bob Dylan story or Vi- last year's Vice, I thought was quite impressionistic. Mm-hmm. Um, Jackie, you made a note of, which I think is a great example of this. And Marie Antoinette also. There's hagiography, hey which I think we kind of hate. Bohemian Rhapsody. Excuse me. Excuse me. You put Walk the Line in this category. And I, I like Walk the Line. take it back. I like Walk the Line. I, I, that's another movie that I wish was just a little bit nastier. It's just a little bit more, a yeah. little bit darker. Because Johnny Cash was had a pretty dark time in his life. And it's, it's, a, like, it's, a, it's a little beatific for me. I guess so. I mean, he I I have watched this movie a lot. He spends like a lot of time on those bills. Like a lot. And it's just Joaquin just kind of looking like very confused for at least a third of the movie. By the way, in case you're wondering who we think is gonna win best actor, the the energy is very strong in the world for Joaquin winning for the for Joker. Okay. Just 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 that's just reporting on that Great. that scuttlebutt that's been going around. 
After hagiography, you know, you mentioned to me two-hander yesterday, which is a very interesting concept. And I couldn't think of one after you mentioned Julia, Julia and Julia. Yeah. Um, But then you mentioned the queen. Yeah. I really liked the queen, which I realized that basically every Peter Morgan movie, Frost Nixon, and the one that he did with Bill Clinton, the one that he did. The special relationship. Yeah. And there, there's even another one that I can't think of now, but all of the, the queen is more two equal people. You're getting both Queen Elizabeth and Tony Blair. It also has a bit of the, like, this one week in a person's life explains everything, which is actually a, um, a form of biopic I really like. Mm-hmm. But Julie and Julia is about one person what a famous person means to a normal person. And so the normal person is like the lens through which we understand the famous person. And there are, uh, there's another example of that coming out in 2019. We're going to get to that in one second. Yeah. There's one other form of these that I think is interesting, which is the unreliable narrator. It's like, catch me if you mm-hmm. can, a beautiful mind, Amadeus. Of all of these, which is your absolute favorite style? Well, I actually had a sixth category, which is, oh. and I mentioned it already, which is like the one week that explains an entire lifetime. I think Judy fits under this. I think the Queen fits under that. I think you could put the social network in that. Mm-hmm. Steve Jobs fits in that. Yep. You know, I I just kind of— Let's it's, call it the snapshot. Yeah. So is that that's your favorite, the snapshot? Yeah, because it's usually the best screenwriting because they just like have a specific idea about the person and are exploring it through one event. Mm-hmm. Because I am a nerd, I would go impressionistic because okay. I think it probably gives you the most room to try the most interesting things. Sure. In 2019, here's a quick list of all of the biopics we've seen. Rocket Man, we discussed on this show. Extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile. There can even be biopics of serial killers like Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. Fighting with My Family, a movie you have seen. I have seen it. Does this count, though? Because I think a biopic has to be of a famous person. Paige is very famous to fans of the WWE. Okay. So, Never. yes. Tolkien, which is about J.R.R. Tolkien, one of the worst movies I've seen this year. Mm-hmm. Dolomite is my name, a movie that you and I just saw. Mm-hmm. Well, I should mention we've just seen a lot of movies together lately. Yeah. Just maybe too many movies together. But we've, gosh, there's so much, so much happening in the world. I don't know why right you now. had to make that rude. I thought you were going to be like, it's a nice thing. <laughs> it's been so good to, to spend go time with you. See a movie with my podcast partner. What do you want? We signed up to do a fucking movie podcast. We got to go see movies. We certainly did sign up. Ford versus Ferrari is coming later this year. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, another film we've just seen, which I look mm-hmm. forward to talking with you about quite a bit more. And The Irishman, mm-hmm. based on sort of a true story. Yeah. What do you think about the state of the biopic? Is it just really easy to pull off and that's why we keep getting so many of these movies? I mean, I like stories about people. Everybody does. Like, history is just stories about people. It's at some point you want a good story, a notable person. It's right there for the taking. And I do enjoy the spectacle of one famous person trying to be another famous person. When it's really fun, when it works, it's great. And when it's really bad, it's you get Gwyneth Paltrow being Sylvia Plath, which is the funniest thing that's ever happened to me. So why not? I can't believe that's a movie that actually (laughs) happened. happened. Daniel Craig is Ted Hughes. That's real. That's just an absolutely wonderful way to end this segment of the show. Amanda, thank you. Let's now go to my conversation with the director of The Death of Dick Long, Daniel Scheinert. Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. You can learn how to direct films by watching Martin Scorsese teach you how to direct films. Or you can learn how to play poker by playing along with Phil Ivey, one of my heroes. With over 60 different instructors across tons of categories, there's literally something for everyone. The Masterclass app is accessible on your phone, web, or Apple TV, and each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials, which you can explore at your own pace. 
Amanda, are there any masterclasses that you're interested in taking yourself? I am unbelievably excited to take the Anna Wintour masterclass, the editor-in-chief of Vogue and fashion legend. I honestly can't believe that she made one and I'm going to soak it in. What is she teaching? Do we know? I think how to be Anna Wintour. Sign me up. May we all aspire to such greatness. (laughs) I highly recommend you check out Masterclass. Get unlimited access to every Masterclass. And as a listener, you get 15% off the annual all-access pass. So just go to masterclass.com slash big picture. That's masterclass.com slash big picture for 15% off Masterclass. Delighted to be joined by Daniel Shiner. Daniel, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Hello. Hello. You're one half of another group of Daniels, but you've made a new film by yourself. Yeah. I mean, I did everything. All everything was all by myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, you collaborated with all the folks that worked on this movie, but you are a solo act on the death of Dick Long. So before we get into this movie, which I just said to you before we started recording, I have no idea how to talk about because there are some revelations and tonal fascinations in the movie. The that whole movie is just a prank on podcast hosts. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, ha ha, mission accomplished. Um, why did you and Daniel decide, Daniel Kwan decide to not yeah. work on this film together? Um, so it, it very much was not a movie by myself. Like one of my best friends, Billy Chu wrote it. And, uh, so long story short, I wanted to make my friend Billy's movie while Dan Kwan wrote the first draft of our new movie. And it felt like a fun, uh, project. So it's kind of like the band, uh, did a solo record and we're really excited about our next record. Okay. But hopefully you're not David Lee Roth in this equation. You want to be who do you want to be in this equation? Maybe uh, Paul Stanley? I want to be like, uh, you know, Radiohead. Oh, yeah. Tom, you're can, you'll come back together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> tell me about you and Billy. How do you guys know each other? I assume you're both from Alabama. Uh, yeah, the weird thing is Billy's from Maine and Massachusetts. And uh, after we met in college, I've known Billy longer than Daniel Kwan, so he wins. Uh, but, uh, after college, Billy moved back to, moved to Alabama for the first time, uh, and kept like reaching out to me being like, dude, where you're from is so funny. Like, it's so interesting. And like, and I, and I thought he was, uh, wrong, um, cause I <laughs> left on purpose. Where are you from Birmingham? I'm from Birmingham and then have family all over Alabama. Okay. Uh, but anyway, he would tell me it was awesome. And basically, like, through Billy, I learned to love where I'm from. You know, he'd tell me these stories that, like, I had kind of been in my own little bubble as a kid. And uh, the more the more I went back, I was like, wait, Billy's right. This is fascinating. And this is, like, a part of uh, my life that, like, makes me a unique storyteller. I have to make movies here. How did you engage with going home? Were you going home to see family, just holidays, the kind of normal trips like that? Uh, normally, yeah. But I, I've also, I've been back to shoot things often because it's fun and uh cheap (laughs) in la like shooting in a bar is like five thousand dollars bare minimum and like in in alabama we got like the run of an entire hospital including the emergency room while they were operational for like less than two thousand dollars how and they were apologizing to us being like i mean if if an ambulance comes in uh we'll let you know 10 minutes out like do you think you can get out of the way <laughs> and we're like, absolutely. <laughs> well, okay. So there's strong functional reasons to use Alabama to return to Alabama. Yeah, it's um, it's pretty, and and I and I have a lot of fun. Yeah. Did you find yourself doing cultural anthropology around your hometown, home state? That was like uh my one of my favorite parts of making Death of Dick Long was like making a sort of anthropological movie, which like Dan Quan and I make uh kind of high concept surreal uh perverted dramas and um. 
we don't we don't often get to like just kind of uh, absorb a place and what people are actually like, you know, um, in the way that I got to on this, which was like, uh, if we saw something interesting, we'd put it in the movie, you know, as opposed to like, this is all in Hank and Manny's heads, kind of like, so sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> so with a movie like this, which has, um, which is sort of a murder mystery in a way. Mm-hmm. How do you sell this movie that is, as I say, difficult to talk about, yeah. but has some complex themes? What, uh, how, how do you get the money to make a movie like this? How do you convince all the people to participate in a movie like this? Yeah, I mean, it's a murder mystery and a comedy. So, like, those are pretty accessible mm-hmm. pitches. Um, and then I say, like, uh, but it's not different than my other work. It's still crazy. And I, I like movies that, like, surprise audiences and take them on a journey in the in the theater uh, whether that's like uh, through super subjective, awesome, crazy filmmaking choices, or through like narrative roller coaster stuff, and this is more the narrative roller coaster style than um, the former. Yeah, and I mean, your last film, Swiss Army Man, with other Daniel, yeah, um, obviously is doing a lot of what you're describing there. Was this like a conscious choice to say I want to do something that is more narratively surprising, but a little bit more stripped down in the style, or did it just so happen that Billy wrote a story that? led to that that opportunity. I guess, yeah, it's both. But that is something that attracted me to it was that like Dan Kwan and I have like a huge Venn diagram of similar interests. But there's some things that like uh, I'm obsessed with American movie and he's not, you know? And like I'm obsessed with Fargo more than him. And uh, this was like a chance to work with actors and just really dig into like what I thought were like a series of incredible scenes that my favorite screenwriter had written. Um, and uh, so, yeah, like doing the cultural anthropology was very much my scene and exciting and um, and doing the really focusing on casting an ensemble of faces that people weren't necessarily familiar with was like so fun and a different challenge than usual. Um, How did you find all those people? Um, it was a total mixed bag. Uh, growing up in Alabama, like I'd see movies that were set in Alabama and, you know, kind of begrudge the accent that the Hollywood actors attempted. Um, sure. and. And the production design and, you know, everything about it, you know. Um, and so I didn't want anybody to fake the accent. So, like, I just started searching for actors with Southern roots. So, like, even if they were faking the accent, they were imitating a relative, not, like, a movie they saw. Um, Is there a memorable bad version of Alabama on screen? Yeah, I, I haven't rewatched Sweet Home Alabama in a long time. But, like, growing <laughs> up, like, that was the one. It was like, yeah. it was like, oh, they shot that one in Georgia. And, like, everybody talks like they're from Gone with the Wind. And I don't know anyone who talks that way, yeah. you know? like, But everybody's like, oh, well, down here in Alabama. <laughs> and I was like, who, what is that? I don't know that. Yeah, that's um, good. So, that, I mean, that was the big one. Um, you know, like, you watch Easy Rider, and the moment they get to Alabama is when, like, a trucker just shoots some people in the face and then drives off and the credits roll. And I was like, man, that's all people see <laughs> of Alabama. Um, I think people are afraid of Alabama. Maybe Alabama and Mississippi yeah. feel like two states that coastal elite dicks like me yeah. don't visit. Thanks. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> no. I, I know who I am. Uh, but- in Alabama, there's a phrase, uh, thank God for Mississippi, because um, <laughs> we're like 49th in education, you know. <laughs> I was like, oh, Mississippi. <laughs> is there a self-consciousness about it in the state? Like, did you growing up know that you were living in a place that maybe you didn't have as much opportunity or the people looked down on you? Absolutely. Like, uh, you meet, you go to Alabama and you meet, like, the most, like, you meet, like, these intelligent, beautiful, colorful, interesting people, and they're just filled with shame. And they're like, I'm the most 
I'm the most boring person you'll ever meet. I'm from Alabama. Like, and, and I, now that I've left, I'm like, you're wrong. You know, like you're fascinating. Um, there are boring ass people in, uh, Boston and Los Angeles, which are the other places I've lived. I love those cities, but like, it's, it's something that like weighs on people there, you know? Um, and it's real sad. What about trying, you know, you mentioned that it was really easy to shoot in a hospital. Yeah. But in order to access certain parts of a city, do you have to share the script and then will people read this story of this movie and then realize maybe they don't want to be a part of it because of some of the yeah. complex themes we're talking about? Um, yeah, so the, the movie's, um, should I cuss? You'll I, just bleep me? I, I, there's no bleeping necessary. Oh, you sick. can do what you feel. The movie's fucked up. And, um, <laughs> and it was definitely like an interesting thing trying to figure out the ethics of how we wanted to make this movie because like I, I get really bummed when I feel like movies are not ethical and like people don't, you know, care about how they make movies. Um, that being said, like even the title of the movie would turn people off because uh, it sounds like a porn, um, which for those of you listening, if you see the death of Dick Long on a billboard, it's it's not a porn. It's not a porno. There's, it's not a tragic porno either. I'm not sure if I've ever seen the word death in the title of a porno, but Dick Long, perhaps. Yeah. Dick Long's been in porns, yeah. If you Google Dick Long, don't Google Dick Long. You have to add the death in there. <laughs> um, but yeah, we um, the working title was On the Run, and we said it was a dark crime movie. We 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 didn't you know keep it a secret that it was an R rated film, and that like the main characters do some you know messed up stuff. Uh, but that's normal, you know, that you don't like walk around spoiling the movie to everyone when you ask them permission to shoot there. Uh, but anyone who was on screen, we had like a conversation with them because we didn't want like them to be like, wait, what am I in? <laughs> um, okay. It's interesting. I was reading, I was watching a, a documentary about the movie Election mm -hmm. and a superintendent from the school where they shot the movie was remarking that if she had read the whole script and not just the pages that were shared with her, she wouldn't have let them shoot the movie in that high school. Yeah. I wasn't sure if you found yourself in any scenarios like that. Yeah, I mean, we avoided them because we, yeah, so we didn't tell it. We didn't spoil the movie, which, like, I think that's, like, I don't think that's that unethical. Mm -hmm. uh, but, like, if someone's face is on there, you know, if, like, or someone's child is in the movie and they don't know what it's about, like, uh, geez, that's brutal. Um, but then the surprising thing is that, like, um, people in the South aren't oblivious of the reputation they have. Um, it's It's embarrassing that the rest of the world thinks that's all there is down there. But, like, all we talk about at Thanksgiving is like the crazy story you heard about of what happened over in Claysville, you know, like you don't like, uh, so this movie's not that far fetched as far as like jokes people tell down there. So like, I think as soon as we talked about the fact that like, it's a love letter to a community about like, um, some very hyperbolic, ridiculous circumstances, you know, like it wasn't that hard of a pitch, you know? Although my mom didn't really want me to shoot at her church, you know. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask you about your family and the people that you grew up with, given the outsized and fucked up nature of some of the stuff that you make. Yeah. Do they understand where that comes from? Were you the kind of kid who was destined to make fucked up art? It's it's a mixed bag. You know, uh, Dan Quan <laughs> in my new movie is basically like uh, about the process of sharing our movies with our parents. It's about the generational <laughs> divide and about a really weird daughter and her really uh, confused mom. Okay. Um, but it's fun. It's therapeutic, you know, to like make movies that like feel like I'm, I'm learning something about myself and expressing something about myself and then to like share it with my mom and talk about it. <laughs> um, so like, you know, sharing Swiss Army Man with our parents was like a, tr a trip. And, and this one, this one has been too. 
But that being said, like my my aunt Vicky collects funny obituaries, like um, and has since I was a kid. And like I didn't even realize that was weird until kind of recently when I was telling someone, like, "Oh man, Aunt Vicky has this one obit, and it's about it's like a photo of like a little ten year old boy, and it just says, "I will avenge you." <laughs> As the best obituary I've ever seen. Uh, but, like, that was the sense of humor I was kind of, I grew up around, uh, you know, it was like, and that, and that's from, like, a small town Alabama newspaper. Um, so, you know, it is my family's fault a little. I feel like whenever I watch something that you guys have made or even in, in Dick Long, you're trying to put something in the movie or the music video or the TV episode that no one has ever seen before or no one has ever felt before. I don't know if you're actually attempting to do that, but you ha- there is a level of unpredictability that is pretty rare among filmmakers. What, what are the movies that you really cottoned to as a kid? Who are the people that you connected with and kind of that created that maybe that feeling for you? Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, I saw a lot of my favorite movies in high school and middle school, and I didn't like them at first. And then I had to grow and like expand my idea of empathy in order to enjoy that movie. But they would like stick in my brain. So like I saw Wet Hot American Summer in like my sophomore year of high school. And like I did, my friends and I were like, nope, you know, like, but then we were quoting it at school the next day and the next week. And we were like, maybe that movie was good. And then we like went back and watched it. And we realized like we had some like internalized homophobia that like just really turned us off when there's that like crazy sex scene in the middle of the movie. But like, and, and things like that. And like, um, and similarly, like we watched Stella, which is the same guys, and like it was too much for us. But then we started realizing that they were making fun of stories themselves and like taking cultural taboos and like um, messing with them. Uh, and so, like a lot of my favorite movies, like they, I grew to catch up with the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, the, yeah, like I like pushing the envelope. Um, yeah, because in yeah in high school I I couldn't finish Fight Club. It was like too much, and I was like, nope, turned it off. And then like a week later, my brother was talking to his friends about it, and I was like, oh man, I guess I got to finish that movie. Um, so one thing that both of those movies have in common is they were not huge successes when they were first released, but over time developed a kind of cult fan base. Yeah, and I'm curious if you worry or even think about the idea of not being understood. With yeah. the thing that you're making, because a lot of what you guys make and what you what the, this film for sure is provocative and empathetic, but also insane and funny and quite strange and has a un- very unique tone. Yeah, is it frustrating at all when you get a reaction to a movie that's like, dude, what the fuck was that? <laughs> I mean, we kind of prepare for the worst and are usually like pleasantly surprised, you know, how how much people have responded to the stuff we've made. Um, but it is something that, like, yeah, we're constantly worried about. You know, like, the, the stories that attract us are pretty out there. And then we just spend most of our time trying to make it palatable. Like, it's not like I sit at home being like, ha-ha, a lot of people are going to hate my movie. Um, <laughs> no, that would be weird. You know, but there are those filmmakers. You it's know, true. like, I, I I don't, like, aspire to make Human Centipede. I, I want to make, uh, you know, Lolita. Right. Where, where you're like, wait, this is incredible, but, like, it shouldn't be. Um, so... I hope that everyone likes my movies because I, I I think that I'm making pretty humane, humanist, sincere art. Uh, but I also like don't blame anyone if it like, you know, tests their limits and they're, you know, they just it's just their first viewing of Wet Hot. You know, it'll stick with them. Maybe, maybe next time. What was the hardest thing about making this movie? Um, the hardest thing has been like um, 
waiting to release it, which is like such a boring answer. But like uh, we we finished it about a year ago, but like have been, um, you know, we're, we're waiting to like release it at the right festival and then re- waiting to get the right release strategy and stuff. And like ever since I shot it, I've been so thrilled by the cast I found because like a, a lot of them are faces people aren't familiar with. And I'm like, holy cow, like Virginia, who's one of the leads is like incredible. And I can't wait for the world to see how good she is. And, um, and she feels the same way. Like, this is like really an exciting role for her and like, um, Mike and Andre, like all the leads. And, uh, they've just been sitting around for a year, like swearing that like there's a, that they're in an A24 movie that's going to come out. (laughs) Um, and, uh, yeah, so like finding the right way to release it, and I'm so excited to finally put it out there, and just kind of like taking this this crew of re- like everybody who worked on it was so excited and proud of it, and thrilled that like they got to you know work on it, and I've been like, wait, wait, guys, <laughs> is it important once it's released for it to be? I mean, like how do, how what is successful for a movie like this? Right, it's a relatively small film. It's probably, yeah. probably was not a huge budget. No, shot locally. But it's getting a theatrical release by yeah. from a cool distributor, you know, and you you're gonna get a chance to pitch it to the world. How do you? And it, it feels very personal, you know. Your close friend wrote it. Yeah. Does it have to what make does money? Look like does I think. Yeah. I mean, it was a. Quan and I always talk about like uh, taking calculated risks. Like um, our our whole career, we've you know we've made fairly crazy things, but we've always like tried to make calculated risks so that like it was never like a. Uh, well, this is it. My whole career is over. You know, we never maxed out the credit cards to make any of our movies. Um, and same with this one. It's yeah, it's 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 modest investment by a twenty four because it's a crazy movie. But I think it's pretty likable murder mystery comedy. I I think if it finds its audience, like that's success, and I feel pretty confident it will um, find its audience. You know, unless uh, the New York Times just puts a headline on the front page that spoils the ending and says it's an F, you know? Maybe we'll do that. Um, I feel like even then it would find its audience. That'd be pretty fun. That's probably uh, true. That's that fine. actually would be great for the movie, yeah. be, I guess. Yeah, like if there had been a headline that had just said, like, Bruce Willis was dead the whole time, everyone would be like, <laughs> what? And then they would have been like, well, I'm still going to watch it. <laughs> Guys, Daniel just spoiled the sixth sense here on this podcast. I didn't say so. which movie. Oh, no. <laughs> Could have been Die Hard. Jesus <laughs> <laughs> for anyone who hasn't seen that one um, you, but no, before we started recording you also mentioned you're working on an episode of a TV show with other Daniel yeah so how do you determine wh- how to spend your time professionally yeah is how much of it is I need it to do a work for hire thing I need to do something that's only going to take me eight days I need to make a film because that's the thing I'm most excited about explain to me kind of a person you're like you guys are jacks of all trades in Thank terms you. of the, the, the shape of the uh-huh. thing that you make so what what how do you make those choices yeah i mean um we just try to stay curious and interested and pursue things that seem interesting to us and then every once in a while there's gaps and um in our bank accounts or our schedules where we're like oh let's try to squeeze, squeeze something in um but i mean we feel so lucky that like uh we can get projects that we want to make greenlit so we're trying to ride that wave as long as it lasts and and um pay pay the mortgage in the meantime uh, is kind of it, you know? Um, so yeah, there's not too much kind of um, strategy of like who we're trying to emulate. I guess the person, there are people I'm trying to emulate. Like I, I, I've decided I want to be like Richard Linklater. I just want to make interesting movies for a long time and, mm-hmm. and for people to kind of like me. Um, 
It's a pretty good strategy. Hard to pull off. Yeah, I don't, but I don't want to like, you know, he's never blown a hundred million dollars on anything. But he also only has like maybe one hit, quote unquote hit. Yeah. Which is fascinating. No, he's got like five or six. Does he? Yeah. What are they? Well, he's got all his indie hits. Like the before, before Sunrise, Sunset, Midnight trilogy is just like, Everyone loves it. Yes. And then but are those School of Rock hits? hit, School Boyhood of... hit, Days and Confused hit. No, no. No? Days and Confused, huge bomb. Well, like, but like cultural in the, hit. In the I life guess. of the mind, yes, yeah. a huge hit. But like, it's amazing because now. It wasn't a box office hit. I don't no, know. No, a lot of those movies are not. I bet it made a fortune on DVD. Probably. I You're feel probably like people right. talk about box office so much yeah. and they like overlook the fact that like, I bet Eternal Sunshine made. Like fuck tons on DVD. You're probably right. Do you, you know? But do you worry about that part of the equation? Because obviously, making movies is a lot different than when Linklater got started. Totally. And having a career as a filmmaker is a lot different. I, I, I'm, yeah. I don't think you guys didn't necessarily have much to worry about. I'm kind of fascinated to see what you guys do with your careers. But it is. It seems like it is harder just to kind of make a living as a person making films. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know enough about what it what it used to be like. But like, we feel we feel lucky. And we're trying to not like waste uh, the chance to tell stories that we want to tell and also not waste the chance to like um, pay for our kids college, you know, <laughs> somewhere land in the between. <laughs> what um, what are you going to do next? What are you guys doing next? Uh, so we've uh, for the last like three years, we've been writing drafts of uh, our um, our sci fi epic called Everything Everywhere All at Once. But uh, or it might be called Hot Dog Hands or I came up with a new title the other day. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. Um, but yeah, the, the hot dog hands is good, right? Yeah, that's you know, good. If you just saw like a billboard and it was Michelle Yeoh with like no bones in her fingers <laughs> and it just said like hot dog hands, you know, you'd be like, what? I got to see that. Would see. Yeah. So that one's, that one's like, uh, if Dan Kwan's mom was the star of the matrix, um, but it's set mostly in an IRS building and, uh, it's, are you of, being real with me right now? Yeah, I this really is real. can't tell if you're fucking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, that's what we've like, that's our dream project that we're really uh, close to getting to make that we're really hoping we make soon. Okay. And do you long-term want to make films that are sort of big in scale? I feel like you you guys have, a, and you especially have a boundless creativity in terms of what you can see in your mind and then what you're trying to put on screen. But sometimes in order to do that at two hours time, you need a lot of money. Yeah. Do you want to try to make bigger projects? Um, I want to, I want to just keep taking calculated risks, mm-hmm. you know, like I think um, I, I want to get just enough money that I can still make something interesting or weird that I haven't seen before. Um, I just, I just think I would be a very bad filmmaker if, if I was handed a a normal script. Um, like I don't, I wouldn't be good at it. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of admire people who can like nail it, you know, and, and make like a, a great accessible, you know, whatever movie. Yeah. It's funny though, because I feel like uh, if you guys put your brain or you put your brain on a work for hire thing you might make you would elevate it so significantly in a way it's like that's kind of a fascinating mental social challenge too right it is yeah for for a moment dan and i were like let's just make like a norm core rom-com like just like <laughs> just so norm because after so sorry man our brains were broken and then like we started workshopping what it would look like and who we would cast and like the soundtrack would be all 90s hits and then it slowly devolved into this movie that we want to make called how to lose a guy in 10 days 2049 that's like a, a rom-com that becomes like a post-apocalyptic uh high concept charlie kaufman action film uh so we just we blew it you know we tried to write something normal and then now we 
and then we wrote that. <laughs> so. Do you have any other um, scotched movies that you'll never make that you could share with us here so oh, far? Oh, I mean, that's one we actively want to make. Swiss Army Man used to be one of our joke pitches. You know, we'd go into meetings and be like, okay, they'd be like, what kind of stuff are you interested in? And we're like, okay, there's this guy, he gets on this corpse. Um, and and Death of Dick Long for years was like a joke movie that like, not a, that I would just say, they'd be like, what are you interested in? I'm like, well, my, my friend Billy wrote a movie called This and This is What Happens. And people are like, uh, are you joking? I'm like, no, it's really the best script I ever read. <laughs> That's um, amazing. So yeah, we, who knows if we'll ever, you know, which ones we'll make. Um, I've always wanted to make, uh, I want to make a sequel to John Wick um, where they kill John Wick and his dog avenges him. And so it'd be like Shaggy Dog, you know, meets John Wick. Um, I'm in. You know, like, it's like, okay, how many times can he like kill, like shoot people in the forehead because of, you know, his dog or whatever. Like it's time for the dog to shine. Wow. Daniel, I end every episode of the show by asking filmmakers, what's the last great thing that they've seen? Yeah. What's the last great thing you've seen? The, the last one? Um, I, I mean, I, I, I saw Midsommar twice. Me too. Uh, and, uh, Pretty fucking awesome. I love it. It's, um, I, I love a big swing that hits me. And like, in some ways, the fact that it does, that some people don't love it makes me love it even more. Like uh, Quan and I, um, I, I wasn't sure if Dan Quan would like it. Or Billy Chu, and I, I saw it with each of them, um, and uh, and when they loved it, and I loved it too, it was that moment where like you and your best friends remember why you're best friends, you know, and you're like, you got it, I got it too, and I was scared you wouldn't get it, and then we like, you know, <laughs> hug and have a beer, um, so it it was special. That's beautiful. I tried to have that experience with that movie with my wife, who saw it and loved the first hour and. 40 minutes and then uh-huh. I became physically ill in the final act of the movie, yeah. which was perhaps the intended effect. A little probably, but... But that also maybe is why I loved her. She, We created some empathy between us because she had the right physical reaction to the movie in a way. I, I listened to a couple get in a fight behind me the second time I watched it, which is just perfect for that movie. And I was like, see, see, this movie's brilliant. Look do, you, at- do you think people will be fighting over the death of Dick Long? Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's already happened a little. Like... Um, it sparks debates and people talk about it and uh, it's really fun to talk about after people see it and and then talk to people who see it a second time and like it kind of changes. But uh, yeah, and it's it's really interesting. Like d- people react differently to it uh, unpredictably across like race, age and um, gender. Like and uh, it's so fun to talk to old people who love it um, and, and old people who don't get it. <laughs> and, you know, like just all over. It's It's pretty fun. I thought it was really fun too, Daniel. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Daniel Scheinert and thank you, of course, to Amanda Dobbins. Please tune into The Big Picture next week where what will we be talking about, Amanda? I think we're going to talk about Dolomite Is My Name. Dolomite Is My Name. And documentaries. And documentaries because Diego Maradona will be premiering on HBO on October 1st. I'll have an interview with the filmmaker Asif Kapadia. We'll be chatting a little bit about the best documentary category, so stay tuned.